Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How are you feeling? I'm doing great. Is it me, or has it been a while since we've recorded? Like it feels like it's been, it's been it's time, been a really long time. There's been time. Okay. Yeah, we were banking them for a while, so we were doing we were doing them like every few days for a while, and then we got far enough ahead. Which is a gift. Yeah. That then it was like, oh, I need to push or whatever. Great. So yeah, so it's ended up being we've had some time that, yeah. It feels like I haven't seen you in, I haven't seen you in 14 years. (laughs) It does. It really does. Um, But then, of course, again, you're seeing me in a few days because we're doing a couple uh, in a small span. Yeah, we're back to Uh, banking. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, it's going to be what it's going to be. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I was just pulling up. Okay, great. Um, I'm in Toronto, and so I have a different system when I'm here about how I do this part of the job. And I just realized I didn't have what I needed in front of me, but now I do. I didn't need to take us all on this ride, but here we are. (laughs) Um, I'm actually partway through my second cider, and I don't think that I should be as drunk as I feel. Oh, I think just once once we turn on those lights and once this gets going, our brains just stop functioning. Yeah. I think is part of the problem. Yeah. Um, and I just, I think we just mentally like shut off because we're like, oh, I'm in her presence. She'll understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Even though I'm not using words that are English. Yep. Like oh, it yeah. just makes sense. So I think we just mentally shut down. So maybe your brain is just like, 
I can let the alcohol take over because the rest of me isn't needed because there's a pretty light and away we go. Yeah. Jesus, take the wheel. Or in this case, (laughs) Summersby cider. Summersby, take the wheel. Yeah. I like that. Summer dream. Make me feel fine. Um, I watched... The Metallica documentary again. That explains that. <laughs> yeah. So I watched it when it came out. Some kind of monster, I believe it's called. It came out in like 2014, I want to say. Oh, sure. And it's the one where basically the band is in like a tough spot and they hire like a full-time therapist to be with them. Okay. And so a lot Good of it for is, them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was really controversial at the time because I think some people were like judgmental, which I think is kind of shitty no. to be honest with you. Um, but all this to say, there was a new edition, like a follow-up doc. Great. And I was like, well, I want to rewatch the original one first. And then I texted Christy, <laughs> apropos of nothing. Yep. Or should I say I texted Blanche and I was like... <laughs> I know this doesn't make sense, but I am viscerally attracted to a young James Hetfield. And it's, I'm not saying that's that I am now. I'm not saying that it's, you know, going to stick with me. Of course. But what I'm saying is, is that young him, I think is bigger than me. (laughs) That's what you like about him. Well, hello. Hello. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense now. Um, yeah. I, a lot of times we send each other messages that don't make sense, nope. but you don't need it to make sense. No. Nope. Like you get it and you're like, that's under- understood. Like yep. she's going through something that I don't know. Yep. Understood. Uh, but now this, yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And look, he's never been my flavor of choice. Me neither. But like I said to you in the moment, there's uh, musicians are magic wielders. They will absolutely like they just have a magical power to entrance all who see them. And to quote love, actually, again, like I did to you in that text. Yeah. Even Ringo got a Bond girl. There it is. Yeah. Shout out to front of the podcast, Liam Neeson. (laughs) <laughs> oh ever so cool ever so cool but then i watched yeah. a documentary after that gosh what was it called count me in i believe it was called and it's it's just interviewing famous rock drummers from throughout the decades Ooh. interesting uh-huh. uh shout out to uh taylor hawkins who was in it uh-huh. um so there was a handful of female drummers, which was great. And to be honest with you, as I was watching it, I was like, I'd really rather just hear their stories. I was like, I think it's more interesting to hear. And one of the gals, now I'm paraphrasing, but she did say something. She was talking about her experience and and they all did basically in some degree where it was like, you know, there's been times I've been trying to like get into my dressing room and then security assumes that you're a groupie and tries to kick you out. And like just the assumption that there's no way that a woman could be in a rock band. And sure. There was this one moment where one of them, and I cannot remember who it was, and I apologize for that, but she was saying, she was like, you know, uh, again, paraphrasing, but it was like, you know, a dude will 
will potentially be drawn to this line of work because they might be into music, but because it's exactly what you're saying, where it's like there is that rock star possibility mm-hmm. where, you know, and she's like, and you know, I can say that that women get in it because they really love it because it's not easy for women in this industry. And I was like, that's so sure. true. Like when we're talking about especially the harder rock stuff, I feel like, you know, sure. pop singing, that's a different story. Obviously, there's very massive, successful female pop stars. But when we're talking about heavy metal, punk rock, those kinds of genres, sure. even rock and roll, it's not it's not the same world. Sure. Anyway, I thought that was fascinating. It also made me feel like I want to make a documentary just about women in, in rock and roll. I think that'd be great. You know? Yes. Now, I could be wrong, but didn't uh, Lenny Kravitz have a female, female drummer? She was in the documentary. Yeah, she was. What was that? <laughs> it was like power to women. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, she Hell was. yeah. Um, uh, Karen Carpenter. You didn't ask me to list female <laughs> drummers. Ah! Karen Carpenter, um, that's amazing. Because uh, she... I can't, oh, God. Um... I, I also want to say, like, Sh- Sheila E., maybe? Was she a drummer or was she a guitarist? <laughs> As the they both pull up their phones. Because that's how it works. Yep. Drummer. Singer and drummer. Nice. Excuse me. Oh, my God. And Stunning. Oh, yeah. Did we know that? Oh, I knew that. Good for her. Gorgeous. Good for her. Yep. Oh, my God. Look at her rocking out on fucking heels. Yep. Good for her. Uh, And Harry Styles has a female drummer. Yeah. Or he did at one point. Also shaved his head. That's the big news. Have you seen this? I haven't. Is it? Well, how is it? I mean, you know, it's not great because you didn't text me about it. Well, I it's it, listen, let me put it this way. It's definitely a different look for him. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately he can't look bad. Well, he's got the bone structure. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, God, he got dirty. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Blanche. Dear people, has joined us here on the show. Oh, God. Yep. I did see a funny meme, though. And it was was a picture because, of course, Florence Pugh has also shaved her head this year, if we remember that, uh, earlier in the year. And then someone just put it up and said, how hard is it to work with Olivia Wilde? And it was a picture of both Florence and and Harry with the shaved heads. That's amazing. No shade to Olivia Wilde. I just think that it was a clever... Clever bit. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the big, that's the headline news for me. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I I, th- I think I what I should have said was he looks gritty in like, I should, that would have been a nicer way than how I worded it. But <laughs> yeah, I approve. I approve. Um, oh, I love that I feel the need to say this. Yeah. Uh, for the show, because I, I have been asked about it a lot um, I've been asked about it a lot in comments on our show and uh, a lot over on my own uh, socials. 
there is a book that Book Talk has been raving about. Okay. All year. It's called Fourth Wing. I believe the author is Rebecca Yaros. I could be wrong because I wasn't planning on mentioning it in this. But I heard about it months ago and people were raving and they're like, I love it so much. It's so great. And I was like, uh-huh. There have been a couple of people that are like, it's over raining. And I'm like, okay, great. But I heard that it ended with like kind of a cliffhanger and that the second book was coming out in November. And so I was like, well, what I'm going to do, because I'm a psycho, mm-hmm. I'm going to order that first book mm-hmm. and I'm going to order, pre-order the second book. And when the second book is about to come out, I'll start that first one so that by the time I'm done, I can, I'll have the second one and I can just immediately roll into it if I want to. A couple chapters in, it's, they're hefty books, uh, 500 pages and the writing is small. So like it was, <laughs> I felt like I was taking some time. Um, I got partway through and I was like, okay, I like her tone. I like her voice. It's light bubbly. I, I'm all for it. Um, I finished the first one around like midnight and I laid there for a couple of seconds, got out of bed, got back into bed, got out of bed. And I was like, I think I'm going to go record a video of myself just to tell people I finished the book and anybody who's read it will understand in that moment what I'm feeling because I was feeling about 80,000 different emotions at once and I couldn't handle myself. And then I was like, Christy, you're not going to go and record. I did not. So I got back in bed and I just laid there and then I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll go pee. Maybe that's my problem. It was not. I I didn't have to pee. I just was feeling a lot of emotions. She really, she really got me. That final page made me go, son of a bitch. <laughs> um, I just, uh, wow. I, I'm now into the second book. Equally enjoying it. And what I'm going to say, there's no fay in this. Mm. There uh, is a light smut, but. As I tried to explain to my husband, who loves to tease me about my smutty books, uh, every once in a while he'll be like, are they boning yet? And I'll just be like, they're not. Uh, but in this one, I was like, well, they haven't done anything. Like, you're not going to – no one's fucking anyone till at least page 16 and 90. Like, <laughs> you don't – you can't do it that early. It's the official so, structure of fairy smut. I get it. Of course. Of course. So I'm like, in this respect, um, it's like a fantasy thing. But – They don't, like, there's, like, a lot of tension, and they don't do anything until much, 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 much later in the book. And I explained this to my husband, and he was like, "Uh uh-huh. And I was like, it's what we like to call a slow burn. (laughs) I can't be stopped. The point is, there's no fey in the book, uh, but what there are are dragons. And I didn't think I cared about a dragon, especially ones whose names I can't pronounce. Sure. The way they pronounce in my head while I'm reading are so different. I have not looked up, like, how to pronounce them. But I'm sure it's wildly different. But to say that I got very emotional over a dragon. (laughs) Yep. Not even one I thought I'd care about, but I did. 
and the feelings are coming to the surface now. And it's, look, I'll say, yeah, fourth wing, all the hype. Wow. All the hype. Wonderful. All the fucking hype. I have a special edition of it coming because I want it to more properly match the second book. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, you could probably then sell the first book and recoup a little bit of your money. And then I was like, well, or just keep two copies. I have multiple copies of some books I like. Like, I didn't see this coming, but well. Well. Faye, dragon, doesn't matter. To be clear. Nope. What I was going to say, I just realized was a lie. I was going to say the dragons don't get smite. They did, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't like a, it wasn't the way the face smut is, but. Wow. Yeah. The dragons aren't like the main people of the story. They're secondary characters. and But they're they still. They talk out loud, but they mentally communicate with their. Sure. With their riders. So. Got it. But they're yeah. still breathing fire down below. Uh, the ones who are mated do. <laughs> do they mate for life? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. And there's a beautiful, like, bonding thing where the, the, the dragon chooses the rider. And essentially the bond between them becomes so intense. If one of them dies, the other does. Oh, Wow. Yeah, but regardless wait. as to like the, the situation. Wait, wait. So when you say that dragons mate for life, do you mean with each other, like other dragons? I do. Okay, great. I just wanted to yes. make sure. Oh, there's no inter-dragon people <laughs> relationship. <laughs> They're only Thank friends. God. They're only friends. Fantastic. Or chosen family, maybe. Okay. But yeah. Well. They only get down and dirty with their own dragons. Like dragon, dragon. Dra it's only dragon on dragon stuff. <laughs> it's nothing weird. <laughs> It's only dragon well, on dragon. It's nothing weird. <laughs> I, okay. I mean, there's also human on human, but I was just trying to make it clear that there were no dragon human. Right. Weird things happening. Right. No interspecies. I don't know if, I don't feel like I've sold this book. <laughs> you know, honestly, <laughs> I, I, think, to, I think the people that are listening that are no. into this genre are going to think nothing <laughs> of it. And I think the rest of us are going... Much like you were said regarding my text, sometimes you don't have the context and you just go, okay. And that's, I think, where I'm at. <laughs> Makes her happy. Not going to yuck her yum. No, nope. for who's, her. Who's getting hurt? Nobody. 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 Oh, I'm sure there will be a few people that are like, it took you long enough, but at the same time, that was smart to wait for the second because then you just roll right into it like it's, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Well, listen, on that note, I've already yeah. talked about what I'm drinking. What you drinking over there? Uh, oh, I've just done a Slurpee for the day. Don't say just. Yeah. The Slurpee oh, is well. the king of drinks. It is. It is. And now it now it's now it's fickle. Mm. Because the weather has been uh rather out of the ordinary warm. Mm -hmm. So more and more people are going. And my favorite location, half the machines aren't working. Woof. And most most people aren't like me, where if I walk in and my it's not to the consistency I want, I'll walk out. Yeah. It seems people who go there will be like, oh, I guess I'll take this one instead. And so by the time I get there, it's it's slop. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't drink it when it's like that. Yeah. And so yeah. 
yesterday I, I didn't get one and it was, it was a crushing blow. I think what I'd like is for us to insert an old reference from our lives uh, into the vernacular in terms of what is meant by <laughs> slop. I think if you go in and that you see that the Slurpee looks like slop, you I offer to you that what you could say is that's it's a Baconator day. <laughs> oh, that's just a mess. It's a mess. Well, except in that case, I ate it. <laughs> well, yeah, but you really did, we didn't really have a choice. Yeah. We had gone through a Wendy's drive-thru in the middle of nowhere in, in an area that I'm going to yeah. say it, not safe. So it was like, we yeah. can't get out of the car. We can't go into pee, but we can get sustenance. And she opened that Baconator and I believe the direct quote was, oh, that's just a mess. Yeah. <laughs> but delicious. Yep. Delicious. Yep. We are getting a Wendy's. Shut they your lips. Literally building a Wendy's in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, Canada as we speak. Nothing but the bites. Yeah. <laughs> We've had a lot of like <laughs> iconic moments in our relationship at Wendy's drive throughs Yeah. Oh, I would go so far as to say at most fast food chains. True. True enough. Us and Harvey's for a while there. Oh, God, I love Harvey's. I should get Harvey's been before to Harvey's I go. Harvey's in years. Yeah. Years. It's nice. It's a Canadian burger chain for those who are uh, not from here. Um, not in every part of Canada is the other point. Regional. No. Regional. Hmm. Um, yeah. Wendy's, Harvey, sure. Sure. McDonald's. I mean, obviously. Also, to everyone who's tagged us in the McDonald's Crocs posts. <laughs> thank you. We've seen them. And I am riddled with indecision about which ones to get. Mm, There's part of me no. that's like, do I get the full collection? I don't know. What I'd like to know, is anybody else in Canada oh. getting the Happy Meal Disney 100 toys? That's a question for you Canadian listeners, and we know that you'll let us know. Tell us, because we yeah. do have them in Los Angeles. We have the the Disney Funko mm -hmm. 100 Years toys. But you've yeah. been a few times now in your town, and, and nada. Yeah. They, like, everything I saw that said it was coming out starting halloween and i got jazzed yeah and so i went halloween and ordered the second toy not it and i went recently just a couple days ago and it was like here's your pokemon happy meal mm -hmm. and i was like pokemon nobody in my house likes pokemon well the kid the happy meals for that's po not the point pokemon oh that was brilliant I'm a cider and a half in, and I'm in the sweet spot. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. I really do. Well, listen, on that note, yeah. let us know, Canadian listeners, on that. Uh, yeah. In the meantime, let me tell you a little bit about the case we'll be discussing today, which is, of course, Randy Roth. And I've just, I don't read ahead, as, as you know, dear listeners, we never mm -hmm. read ahead on the synopsis that we write for each other. Yeah. I just scanned the first line. I do not typically do that. And I want you to know it is. <laughs> I, it's going to take everything in me to get through this without laughing because I just love how it's worded. Here we go. Yeah. Randy Roth was a seemingly average guy looking for love. 
I love it. (laughs) However, when it came to relationships, Randy had a terrible habit. He would gravitate towards single mothers, love bond them at the start, and then once he convinced them to add him to their will, he would immediately become cold and distant. Distant. Jesus. Over the course of 15 years, Randy married four times, and coincidentally, 50% of the time, his wife was named Donna. (laughs) D-O-N-N-A spells trouble. Trouble. (laughs) The other 50% of the time, his wife died under mysterious circumstances. Wait a second, and I never interject in the synopsis. This is true crime and cocktails history. This is unprecedented. Are you telling me he wouldn't murder the Donnas? The Donnas are alive. Shout out to rock band The Donnas. Um... (laughs) Wowzer. Yeah. So, what happened to the women in Randy Roth's life? Did they die from freak accidents, or was Randy responsible? And if so, does murder run in Randy's family? Christy Oxborough investigates. Now, I also recognize that I just assumed that he had killed these women, but let's be honest here, statistically speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. I assume that as well. Well, But, yeah, no. Ah, well. So, disclaimer, off the top, as always, this episode will contain mentions of child abuse, so trigger warning for those who need it. Randolph G. Roth, known as Randy, was born December 26, 1954, in Bismarck, North Dakota. He was the first of five children born to Gordon and Elizabeth Roth, Not much is known about the youngest three children. The second oldest child was a son named David, who will come into play later in our story. Shortly after Randy's birth, the family moved to Washington, and in 1971, Gordon and Elizabeth officially divorced. Gordon was court-ordered to pay $375 a month in child support, and Elizabeth went on welfare. To help his mother with finances, Randy, who was a teenager at this point, got a job at a feed and grain store before moving to the Tire Mart service station. Friends say Randy had a reputation for being a bully and that he only chose male friends who would bow down to him. He also was known to be controlling, extremely misogynistic, and just outright seemed to dislike women, despite having multiple girlfriends. It was said Randy only liked women who were submissive and would not challenge him in any way. One of Randy's neighbors said, quote, He was my best friend for eight years, but we knew he hated women. He especially hated women who he said looked like whores. Classy guy. (laughs) We're coming in hot and I love it. Yeah, yeah, we are. Uh, Randy was also said to get quickly angered by any display of emotion, especially if a woman was crying. An example. In high school, Randy dated a girl named Terry Hitchcock. One night while driving recklessly, Randy took a sharp corner and the back door of the car opened and Terry fell out of the car, rolled and hit a curb. One of Randy's friends went over to see if Terry was okay, but Randy was just angry about it. When he saw Terry crying, Randy said, quote, Don't you dare cry. If you make any noise, I'll hit you. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
Terry also said that Randy was, quote, always a little insecure. He was obsessed with his physique and felt at times he was being followed. He said if he got into a fight, he wanted to make sure he came out winning. During his senior year in the spring of 1973, Randy joined the Marine Corps Reserve. A few months later in August, the tire mart was robbed by a man in a ski mask brandishing a knife. The thief tied the cashier up in the back room and walked out with 240 cash and some 8-track tapes. Really, uh, throwing it back with that one. Uh, the cashier later said he believed the thief was Randy, saying, quote, I knew who it was right away. He has the most recognizable sort of bow-legged walk I've ever seen. <laughs> Randy was not arrested, and the following month he entered active duty with the Marine Corps. He was deployed to Okinawa for a three-year service. However, he was discharged less than a year later. Randy's mother, Elizabeth, wrote a hardship letter stating that Randy was needed at home to help support his family. Terry, who had now by this point been in a relationship with Randy for nearly three years, said she helped Elizabeth write this letter, uh, but she said the entire thing was Randy's idea. Randy was discharged in August 1974, and almost immediately after, he proposed to Terry. Since he had nowhere to stay, Terry's parents let Randy live in a vacant house that they were preparing to sell. But shortly after he moved in, Terry discovered a purse belonging to another woman. There we go. So she broke off the engagement, and her parents evicted Randy. Three months later, someone broke into Terry's parents' house. They stole tools, stereo equipment, TVs, and Terry's stepfather's purple heart. Oh, no. Police went to Randy's newest address and discovered all the missing items, except the Purple Heart. Randy confessed to the robbery and blamed the broken engagement on Terry's stepfather. Randy said, quote, He was the only person I could think of who would have the goods I could use to sell, and I would not feel so bad about having taken them. Angry at Randy over the theft, Terry told the police about Randy's involvement in that tire mart robbery in August 1973. Randy then confessed to that robbery, saying he needed the money at the time so that Terry could get an abortion. I don't know how accurate that statement was. Right. But the charges for the tire mart robbery were dropped, and Randy pleaded guilty to second-degree burglary in the case involving Terry's parents. Randy was sentenced to 14 years. However, most of it was suspended, so he really only spent two weeks in prison. He was released June 10th, 1975. Randy's probation officer said Randy gave him false employment information and false grade point averages. When confronted about the lies, Randy just laughed. The probation officer described Randy as, quote, Somewhat irresponsible, rebellious, obnoxious, and immature. Now, something to keep in mind about Randy during all of this is that his mother, Elizabeth, claims her husband, Gordon, was very strict and abusive towards their children and that he discouraged his sons from showing any emotions, as Gordon felt that emotions were too feminine. 
Wonderful. Get over yourself, Gordo. Every human being has feelings. Yeah, I called him Gordo. That's <laughs> incredible. And also, here, 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 here. Let people feel feelings. Some of my best times in life have been spent feeling feelings. <laughs> there you go. And look, you may, you'll never know. Maybe sometime you'll be surprised because you're going to feel feelings for a dragon. That poor innocent <laughs> thing. Anyhow. <laughs> it's fine. Oh, God, that book really <laughs> brought me alive. <laughs> Neither here nor there. So, after their parents' divorce, Randy gravitated to having a more closer relationship with his father, while his brother had a closer relationship with their mother. After Randy was discharged from the Marines, his relationship with his mother just continued to sour. In 1975, Randy described his mother as overprotective. But by the early 80s, he had cut his mother out of his life completely. He started telling people his mother was either mentally unstable or in a nursing home with severe dementia, or sometimes he just outright told people she was dead. None of those things were true. Wow. So Randy spends two weeks in jail for robbing his ex-fiance's parents' house. And just 24 days after he was released, Randy married Donna Sanchez, the woman whose purse Terry found at Randy's house. Okay. Donna was a bank teller and a divorced single mother of one daughter. The couple had met a few months prior when Donna took her car for a tune-up at the gas station where Randy worked as a mechanic. According to Donna, their marriage was happy and harmonious for the most part, but soon Randy was going from job to job and the couple started to drift apart. They had a son named Greg at some point in 1978, but the child didn't make things any better, so Randy and Donna separated in 1979, officially divorcing in May 1980. Randy was given custody of Greg, but Donna was given visitation, although from what I can tell, she did not see much of Greg over the next decade. Now, before I continue with Randy's love life, I need to jump ahead a bit in time to talk about stuff with Greg. Sadly, it does not seem that Greg had much stability growing up. According to a neighbor, while he was at work, Randy would leave Greg at home on his own, even when Greg was like six. Oh, no. Hmm. I should mention, I have read a lot of stories that claimed that Randy always hugged his son and told him that he loved him. However, it absolutely does not make up for how harshly Greg was punished. An example... One day, Greg forgot to put the garbage out on the correct day. So Randy dumped the entire bin and just spread it across the neighborhood. And then he made Greg get on his hands and knees and pick up every single piece. And when Greg was done, Randy noticed a small scrap of paper that Greg had missed. So Randy dumped the bin and made him start over. Jesus. And did I mention that it also happened to be raining that day? Then there were times when something was out of place in Greg's room. So Randy would empty every drawer and the closet and strip the bed and make Greg clean it all up. And then there was the time 
that he discovered Greg hadn't been handing in his homework, and Randy flew into a rage and asked his neighbor to take Greg for a few days because Randy was afraid of what he might do. To be clear, it wasn't that Greg didn't do the homework. He had. It was that he was so terrified that it wouldn't be perfect that he just didn't bother to hand it in. Right. But after he cooled down, Randy had Greg return home early. But then Greg forgot to flush the toilet later that night, and Randy held Greg's head in the toilet and flushed it repeatedly, nearly drowning his own son. Jesus Christ. He then kicked Greg in the stomach so hard that he vomited. Oh my God. Greg was eight at the time. And I don't think it needs to be said, but I'll say it anyway. These were not examples of harsh discipline. These were examples of abuse. Randy may have tried to treat his home like a military barracks, but he was abusive to his son. I can only hope that somewhere Greg was able to experience a truly loving parental figure, because even at his best, Randy really missed the mark. One neighbor said, quote, Greg could say thank you, but he was not allowed to say please. Randy told Greg that please was a begging word, and he must not beg for anything. No. And this side of Randy is something to keep in mind as we continue to discuss his love life. His divorce, uh, he divorced his first wife, Donna, in May 1980. Seven months later, Randy met Janice Miranda. Janice Louise Brazel was born July 26, 1952. She was raised in Texas by her single mother after her father abandoned the family. At the age of 18, Janice married Joe Miranda in April 1971. Joe was in the army, and after the wedding, he was transferred to Germany, where Joe and Janice welcomed a daughter, Jelena, in October 1973. Unfortunately, things didn't work out between Janice and Joe, and they separated in late 1975. Janice was given custody of Jelena, and Joe was ordered to pay $250 a month in child support. Janice always took those payments and put them in an envelope, saving them for Jelena's future. So Janice and Jelena spent some time in Texas and California before settling in Washington, on December 31st, 1980, Janice met Randy at a Parents Without Partners New Year's Eve dance. Janice immediately fell for Randy's charisma and his obvious dedication to his son. Randy seemed different from other men than Janice had met, so when he asked for her number, she gave it to him. And in the beginning, everything was great. Randy was loving and affectionate. He would often give Janice flowers, gifts, love notes... This, dear listeners, is what is now known as love bombing. Randy also seemed very open with Janice. He told her about the horrors he had seen during his time in the Marine Corps, including the time he spent in Vietnam, which still gave him nightmares. Randy proposed two months later, in February 1981, and the following month, Randy and Janice were married in a civil ceremony in Seattle. They spent their honeymoon at the Empress Hotel in Victoria, B.C., Canada, after which Janice and seven-year-old Jelena moved in with Randy and three-year-old Greg. Shortly after the wedding, the entire vibe of the relationship changed. The love notes and flowers stopped. 
They stopped having sex because Randy said he found sex to be really painful ever since he had a vasectomy a few years prior, which is interesting that it didn't bother him while they were dating. It just suddenly bothered him once they got married. Just two weeks after the wedding, the 1974 two-toned Ford Pinto that Janice owned was stolen. It was found a few months later, stripped and abandoned on a nearby street. Despite Janice having insurance on it, Randy insisted that she just accept a cash settlement instead, which is odd. But also, in 1980, are a lot of people stealing 1974 Pintos? I don't know. Just felt very sketchy to me. But yeah. soon after, Randy pushed Janice to quit her job. Randy was working as a diesel mechanic at Vitamilk Dairy, and he told her he was making 30 grand a year, which is equivalent to about 101,000 in 2023. Randy also said he had about $250,000 worth of life insurance, so if anything were to happen to him, Janice and the kids would be taken care of. Unfortunately, what Janice didn't realize is that Randy not only exaggerated about his current income, he also exaggerated about the amount of life insurance. And not only that, but Randy claimed Janice was the beneficiary of his policy. She was not. His beneficiary, beneficiary at the time was his father, Gordon. But Janice didn't know any of this, so when Randy pushed her to quit her job, she did. Three weeks after the wedding, Janice applied for a daycare license, and after a house inspection, Janice opened a daycare in their home, taking in a few toddlers throughout the day, as well as one overnight. And even though Janice was working at home, Greg often went to a previous babysitter, a married woman who had a previous brief relationship with Randy. After marrying Janice... Randy continued to see that other woman, and whenever he went to her house to pick Greg up, he would make Jelena stay in the car while he went inside. It's also interesting that he's like, you should quit your job and stay home with the kids and then take your kid to a babysitter. Yeah, that's weird. But, you know. So. Ah. <sighs> Oh, yeah. I love. I also uh, find it interesting that Randy uh, is having an affair when he said that sex was painful. Yeah. So I think it's just more proof that, again, liar. Yep. So in August, about five months after the wedding, Randy and Janice bought a new house. Randy suggested that they get Janice her own life insurance policy because if something were to happen to her, well, Randy would be left with two children and a mortgage. He just really, really pushed the idea that the life insurance was for the sake of making sure the children were taken care of. Soon after, Janice told a friend that Randy had so much insurance for himself, she wanted to even up the financial burden by getting her own. So Randy and Janice then got identical policies. Again, I thought he had enough. It's fine. He can't keep up with his own lies. But they get identical policies in September. But Randy seems to do a lot of things uh, that I question in particular. For example, 
on Halloween, shortly after getting these policies. Randy and his neighbor Nick Amondi took their kids trick-or-treating. And out of nowhere, Randy asked Nick if he'd ever be able to kill his own wife. Nick was taken aback. Randy clarified. He said, quote, What if the Russians were coming and you knew she was going to be tortured or raped? Could you kill her first? <laughs> Randy claims the topic only came up because Janice had asked him if he would be able to kill her if something like that happened. Uh, around that time, uh, friends say that Janice had become paranoid and terrified that she might die. So I, I don't believe um, that she asked her husband if he'd kill her if he needed to. Yeah. But anyhow, uh, the life insurance policies they purchased went into full effect November 7th. On the 25th, which was the day before Thanksgiving, Janice called Jelena into the master bedroom. She pulled out the drawer from her nightstand and taped to the back of the drawer was a white envelope. Inside was the money that Jelena's father, Joe, had been giving every month in child support. Janice said, quote, If I'm gone, I want you to come in here and take this and hide it. Jelena later said that her mother asked her to keep it a secret, but she never explained why. A reminder, Jelena was eight at this point. So the next day, the family go and spend Thanksgiving at Randy's stepmother's house. Bright and early, the morning after on November 27th, Randy said he was taking Janice shopping. The kids wanted to go with them, but Randy insisted it was an outing just for the adults. But instead of heading to the mall as planned, Randy made a last-minute detour to the nearby Beacon Rock State Park to go for a hike. They left the house around 9 a.m. And around 11, a group of hikers from Vancouver, Washington, found Randy running up and down the trail, screaming, Oh my God, my wife has fallen. One of the hikers went to call for help, while the others helped Randy search for Janice. The sheriff's office received a call at 11.23 a.m., a possible fall victim at Beacon Rock. When they arrived on scene, Janice was nowhere to be found. Randy, who seemed distraught in the moment, said they were taking a shortcut to the top, which was a climb they had made earlier in the summer. Randy climbed over the railing while Janice crawled under, she took a sharp right turn and slid on something, possibly leaves or loose dirt, and then she fell. Randy said he reached for her, but he wasn't close enough. Um, and before he could get to her, she fell out of sight. He looked over the edge, but could not see her anywhere. Searchers were brought in. One guy, like, repelled 200 feet down, still couldn't find Janice. Two helicopters circled the area. Finally, someone caught a glimpse of Janice's pink winter coat in like a dense clump of trees halfway down the rock. She was approximately 300 feet down from the top of the rock. She did not survive. She was 29 years old. Randy asked to see the body. 
One of the medics warned him and said, she doesn't look good. Randy insisted. He looked at his dead wife and said, quote, she doesn't look so bad. Her face doesn't seem as badly damaged as I expected. Jesus. When asked why they were at Beacon Rock to begin with, Randy said he'd planned to take Janice to the mall, but on the way, Janice suggested they go for a hike. He said, quote, It was her day. She could do anything. And she said she just wanted to be alone with me. And yet, they were both in jeans, which doesn't feel like a like hiking apparel. But I mean, I'm not a hiker. But is it enjoyable to go hiking in jeans? No. Uh, thank you. Is it enjoyable to go hiking? <laughs> also, no. Uh, to each their own. Yes. But it's just, I feel like the outfits prove that it was obviously a last minute plan, but it just feels off. And the on-call ambulance driver... Um, who was a certif- who was a retired homicide detective, said the whole thing gave him, quote, a hinky feeling, which I loved. So the ambulance driver pulls up at the funeral home with Janice's body. Randy showed up just minutes behind him and immediately insisted on her being cremated because he said that's what she would want. He then paid $541 uh, for her to be cremated, and he went home. Well, rather, he went back to his stepmother's house, uh, where the family was. The next morning, Randy called his insurance agent to file a claim over Janice's death. Wowzer! Unfortunately for him, Randy needed Janice's social security number to do that. Uh, So he called a doctor's office where Janice used to work. And when they asked why he needed it, Randy said that there had been an accident while they were hiking and Janice needed to be taken out by helicopter. When the secretary asked how Janice was, Randy responded, I don't know. And when the secretary asked what hospital Janice was at, Randy just hung up on her. Wow. Randy then packed the kids and headed home to Seattle. Randy told Jelena that her mother was in the hospital, but she wasn't allowed any visitors. That's disgusting. So not only did Randy not tell the children that Janice died, he also didn't contact anyone from Janice's life, including her family, her friends, and, you know, Jelena's biological father. He did, however, call the parents of the children that were at Janice's daycare and simply told them to find alternative care for their children. But he wouldn't explain further. When they got home, Jelena did as her mother told her just three days before. She went into the bedroom and grabbed that hidden envelope. When Randy saw it, he took it from her and said he knew Janice was keeping things from him. When Jelena asked about it, Randy said he was going to use the money to buy Jelena presents, which of course he did not. In the end, Jelena never received a penny from her mother's insurance or her mother's estate in any way. Randy acted as though he didn't get any money either because he told Janice's mother the insurance policy wasn't enough to cover funeral costs. 
So instead of a funeral, Randy opted for a small private memorial service. Uh, thing is, he received 107000 from the insurance. I may not be familiar with funeral costs, but I'm pretty sure uh, he could have had a nice funeral for less than $100,000. Yes. But Randy insisted Janice wouldn't have wanted a big funeral anyway. And maybe he needed the money for something other than a funeral, like how he used half of it to buy a new house or how he used some of it to buy a motorcycle for himself and then one for his best friend and how right after the memorial, Randy flew Greg and two family friends to Disneyland and for whatever reason, Randy insisted on paying for everything. Maybe he was just showing off that he had money. Maybe he just wanted controlling something. I don't know. And then when Jelena's father, Joe, who was finally told about Janice's death, came to pick his daughter up, Randy wouldn't let him in the house. He also wouldn't let him attend the memorial. He also didn't let Jelena take anything with her when she left, including any mementos of her mother. Randy told her uh, that she was just going to go with her father for Christmas and she'd get her stuff when she came back. But it wasn't just for the holidays because Jelena never saw Randy again. And when Joe tried to apply for Social Security survivor's benefit payments for his daughter, he learned Randy had already applied on Jelena's behalf. However, Randy claimed Jelena was living with him even though he applied 12 days after Joe picked Jelena up. And to be clear, Randy wasn't applying for the benefits for Jelena. He was applying for himself on her behalf. Gross. Just a real piece of shit. And uh, shady as hell. Speaking of which, uh, during the investigation into Janice's death, detectives noticed that uh, Randy had given them conflicting statements. Like, he told one officer he was behind Janice when she fell. He told the other officer he was in front of her when she fell. Uh, he also told one officer that she fell while she was taking a picture. But no camera was found at the scene or anywhere near her body. Uh, Randy refused a polygraph test. He also asked that there not be an autopsy. However... The coroner ordered an autopsy anyway, as it is protocol regarding violent deaths. While the body suffered massive head injuries, it is hard to determine whether they were caused before or during the fall. Detectives climbed the trail where Janice had fallen, and they noted several shrubs and protruding roots that Janice could have grabbed onto if she was in fact falling, the ground was also quite hard, so the detectives couldn't see how anyone could slip in that area. Based on police recreations, Janice would have to fall at a 45-degree angle to end up where she did. Which, I don't know, I'm not an expert, but sounds to me like she was pushed. Allegedly. Uh, but with no physical proof and no other eyewitnesses, they had no evidence to charge Randy with anything. Detectives interviewed Randy a second time in January 1982. While he spoke to police, Randy had a neighbor over to watch Greg 
While speaking with police, Randy spent the entire time doing busy work. He washed dishes, he swept the floor. It's almost like he was nervous because he had something to hide. Randy just kept saying the entire trip was Janice's idea. When the detectives left, the neighbor, who had clearly been eavesdropping, asked Randy what was going on. Randy responded, and I quote, Don't ask me to tell you something you'll have to lie about. Okay, well, I don't feel bad about assuming he likely killed this woman. What a nightmare. Oh, oh yeah. On that note, let's take a break, hit the can, grab another drink, and we'll be right back with more on the Randy Roth case on True Crime and Cocktails. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We are, of course, discussing the Randy Roth case. Before the break, I was absolutely horrified about all of the details in this man's life, including his child abuse and the fact that he refused a polygraph, requested no autopsy for his wife, and, of course, um, wanted her cremated right away. What's next in this horror show? Uh, Well, uh, just to give everyone a brief... Uh, recap, uh, he married his first wife, Donna, yep. in 1975. They had a son, Greg, in 1978, divorced in spring of 1980. Then in March 1981, Randy married wife number two, Janice Miranda, um, who tragically died after a fall while hiking alone with Randy just eight months later. Uh, Randy continued to see a variety of women. But he didn't marry again until 1985. Donna Clift was a divorced mother of a three-year-old daughter named Brittany. After her marriage fell apart, Donna took her daughter and moved from Arizona to Washington in December 1984. In January 1985, Donna and Randy met at a local 7-Eleven where Donna was working at the time. Randy immediately started showering Donna with gifts, flowers, attention. According to Donna, Randy never outright said that he loved her, but he showered her with gifts, which she took to mean that he loved her. When she asked him why he was giving her so many gifts, Randy said, quote, I want to make an investment in you. I didn't care for the statement. No. no. 
Uh, Randy proposed in February 1985. <laughs> Weeks later, uh, the following month, Donna and her daughter moved in with Randy and Greg. While Donna was putting stuff in Randy's closet, she discovered the box of Janice's ashes. He had told Donna about Janice's accident, and he said he had grabbed for Janice as she fell, but he wasn't able to hold on, and she fell to her death. To, to be clear, that is now the third different version of events that he has told people about how Janice died. But Donna uh, seemed a bit uncomfortable having the ashes around, so Randy said he'd deal with them. Based on what you already know about Randy, would you like to guess how he handled the ashes of a loved one? Flushed them down the toilet? Uh, he threw them out. I'd say... Same answer. Same thing. Yeah. Oh, 100% Steve Gross. Harvey's given you that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Of course. So soon after, Randy suggested that he should legally adopt Donna's daughter so he could become her legal guardian. Donna declined. Good for her. Yeah. Then Randy came home with a stack of insurance papers. He said if anything were to happen to Donna... Randy would be alone to raise two children. And not unlike before, he just really pushed the idea that the insurance was the only way to financially protect those children. So Donna agreed. Once they applied for life insurance policies, they got married in May 1985 and honeymooned at the Empress Hotel in Victoria, B.C., Canada, which is not only the same city, but also the exact same hotel where Randy and his previous wife, Janice, had their honeymoon. Gross. And if that isn't a weird enough coincidence, when they got home, Randy bought Donna a 1974 two-toned Ford Pinto, an identical car to the one that Janice had when they got married. And yet another similarity to his previous relationship, uh, Randy was loving and romantic in the beginning, but once they got married... He turned cold and just suddenly no longer had an interest in sex. In July 1985, Randy lost his job. He told Donna the company he worked for was only paying him for an on-call basis, and he told them he needed a full-time income to support his family. The company told him no, so Randy quit. The truth is that Randy was fired after the company discovered he was using the company gas tanks to fill his own personal vehicle. Donna's father got Randy a job at Cascade Prestige Ford. Randy was soon fired from the job for taking a week-long vacation, even though his requ vacation request had been previously denied. Randy told them he wasn't on vacation he had spent a week handling a family tragedy. Randy told them his mother and sister were in a terrible car accident, and his mother had died. And if that absolute lie of a story wasn't bad enough, Randy took it to extremes by claiming his sister was so distraught over losing their mother that she pulled a gun out and shot herself in her mother's hospital room. Oh, my God. This, of course, never happened. Uh, I just find it wild he thought they'd believe it. You asked for a specific week off. Work says no. 
you don't show up for the exact week you'd asked off. And then when you come back, you offer an insane story that just happened to occur the exact week you wanted off anyway. But Randy was never one for telling the truth, uh, like how he told Donna early on in their relationship that she'd never meet his mother because his mother was addicted to Valium. She wasn't. Randy's anger towards his mother really manifested itself in just constant lies about her. Whatever he felt would make him look, whatever make whatever would make him look good and her look bad. But of course, this wasn't the only thing Randy was untruthful about. For one thing, he outright refused to tell Donna how old he was. Which is so random. Uh, when they got married in the spring of 1985, Randy would have been 30. Donna was 21. For whatever reason, he just refused to tell her his age. Whenever Donna would ask, Randy would say, quote, you don't need to know. But the more secretive that Randy got, the more curious that Donna became. And one day while Randy was out, Donna went looking through his documents. She found his birth certificate, military papers, and an expired driver's license. Each had a different birth date. Interesting. According to Donna, the birth certificate looked like it had been altered. Donna also found bank statements claiming that Randy had a savings account with $99,000, which was strange because Randy had told Donna he didn't have any money. There was also information about a bank account that Randy had in Arizona and statements that Randy received two social security checks a month for two children whose names Donna had never heard. God. There were also documents showing that Randy was suing the state of Washington for $1.8 million for negligence in the death of his wife, Janice. Randy claimed the trail had not been clearly marked, but according to the multiple versions of Randy's story, he said they went off trail and were using a shortcut. So it wouldn't matter if the trail was marked or not. Yeah. So, okay. But Donna also found receipts for the hotel where he had taken Janice after their wedding, and that was the moment she learned that Randy had taken both of his wives on the exact same honeymoon. And if the secrets weren't bad enough, Donna was incredibly uncomfortable with the way that Randy treated the children, especially Greg, like the time that Donna found Randy whipping Greg with a belt while Greg stood naked under a cold shower. Jesus. Uh, Randy denied ever being too extreme with his son, although with a guy like Randy, he would not see that behavior as extreme to begin with. Again, just to be clear... This is another example of outright abuse. But speaking of extreme behaviors, there was a day when Donna came home to find Randy trying to coax her three-year-old daughter to jump off the roof. Oh my God! Randy claimed he was going to catch her and he was just teaching her to trust him. No. Donna said it was obvious to her that Randy did not like little girls. 
In July 1985, just two months after their wedding, Donna said she and Randy had gone for a ride on his ATV, or all-terrain vehicle, or quad, if you will. Randy was driving. Donna was seated behind him. While driving up a steep hill, Randy jumped off the vehicle, causing it to stall and causing Donna to fall off the the vehicle, and it rolled over on top of her, crushing a part of one of her feet. Donna said, quote, I couldn't even get up, and he was just standing there laughing. To this day, I still don't have any feeling in the bottom part of my right leg. And while it just might be seem like a crazy stunt that Randy thought was funny, it also feels like maybe he was purposely trying to put Donna's life in danger? Because soon after, they took a rafting trip with Donna's parents. Donna and Randy were in one inflatable raft. Donna's parents were in another. The rafts got separated, but her parents could hear Donna screaming while Randy was repeatedly shouting, shut up. According to Donna, Randy deliberately steered their raft towards some sharp rocks until water started to seep in. Donna was terrified that he was trying to sink the raft. Randy uh, brushed the entire thing off and said that Donna was just overreacting. But Donna was so terrified that when they got home, she moved out and refused to go back. Randy filed for divorce, but then like just outright started stalking her and leaving notes and flowers on her car. He would go to the 7-Eleven where she worked and just stand there and watch her. Donna's mother contacted Randy and asked him to stop. So Randy had his son Greg call Donna to ask her to come back. Getting a child involved is a low blow. Yeah. Even for you, Randy. Christ. In the fall of 1985, Randy went to the 7-Eleven and told Donna that his mother had died in a car accident, and his sister was so distraught about it that she shot herself in their mother's hospital room. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's the exact excuse Randy told his boss when he didn't show up to work for a week. Not only is it an extreme story, but it's also wild to think that Randy wouldn't assume Donna would have heard this fake story already because Donna's father worked at the same place where Randy originally told the story. In May 1986, uh, once uh, Randy continued this like obsessive behavior and wouldn't leave her alone, but once Donna started seeing someone else, Randy officially, like, pushed the divorce ahead, and they f- their divorce was finalized September 1985. And honestly, based on what I have already said about Randy and the stuff that I know that I haven't yet said out loud, um, I think Donna saved her own life. Yeah, absolutely. By getting out of that uh, marriage. I, I don't really know do. that she was meant to survive that ATV crash. Nope. I think he was testing it to see what could happen. Yeah. It's just wild to me. So in May 1986, Randy uh, saw Mary Jo Phillips at a grocery store. Mary Jo was a divorced mother of five, a.k.a. very much Randy's type. 
Randy had his son Greg, who was about nine at the time, approach Mary Jo and ask if she'd go out with his dad. Mary Jo said Randy swept her off her feet. He was incredibly romantic. He showered her with flowers and lavish gifts. He would take random pictures of her and say things like, I just want proof that I was with such a beautiful woman. He would even try and coordinate their outfits so people would know they were together. Uh, There was a time when Randy took Mary Jo on a spontaneous trip to Canada just for breakfast. If I had to guess, probably the Empress Hotel in Victoria, (laughs) B.C., but for real. So six weeks after they start dating, Mary Jo and her children move in with Randy and Greg. This was when Randy first mentioned that his previous wife Janice had died. Randy told her he was holding on to Janice while she was trying to retie her ropes, but she slipped out of his arms and fell to her death. This is um, the first time that Randy has told the story claiming ropes were involved, and it's the now fourth version of her death that he has told people. Uh, Randy then started to push the idea of marriage. Um, What's the next logical step? You start pushing the idea of getting life insurance policies. Mary Jo willingly talked about marriage, but she constantly brushed off the talk of insurance. Randy then kept pushing Mary Jo to go rafting with him, even though she repeatedly told him she had a pathological fear of water. It's almost like Randy had a plan to kill his previous wife while rafting, and since that didn't work, he decided he liked the plan enough to try it again in his next relationship, you know, allegedly. Randy then pushed the insurance again, this time saying, Oh, we have six kids now. Think of the children. Um, it's like uh, Mrs. Lovejoy on The Simpsons. Won't somebody please think of the children? Yeah, exactly. But at this point, Mary Jo felt bad for pushing so hard and being like a no on the insurance. So she finally admitted to Randy she had previously been treated for cancer. So she was actually uninsurable. Oh, wow. So after this revelation, Randy suddenly became cold and angry. The love bombing stopped and soon the couple broke up. Randy claims the relationship only ended because Mary Jo had five children and two jealous Mm ex-boyfriends. Randy then dated a few women off and on and nothing was ever serious enough to either move in or discuss marriage. And in September 1988, Randy's house was robbed. The person got away with TVs, stereo equipment, tools, video games. They even ripped up the carpet in his living room. Randy filed an insurance claim for the stolen items, which Randy claimed were worth $57,000. So we're all skeptical, right? Because at this point, none of us trust Randy. Mm -mm. But Randy's neighbor and... BFF at the time, Ben Goodwin, he's a very light sleeper. He said he wakes every single time a car drives into their neighborhood. But the robbery just so happened to take place while Ben was in California on a week-long work trip. I'm sure the timing was just a coincidence. But when Ben heard about the robbery, he was shocked. 
He then hears about it from Randy, runs home, and goes to tell his wife and their daughter, Brittany, about it. But Brittany was like, oh yeah, I already know everything about it. Brittany said Randy told her he was going to take a bunch of his stuff out of the house to try and get money from the insurance company. She said he told her he'd back a truck up to the garage, break a window, store the stuff in a storage shed. She also said he would tear the carpet up in the living room because it was hideous and he wanted to replace it anyway. Brittany told her father she thought Randy was kidding. But since the robbery went down pretty much exactly as Brittany had described, despite her not being there, uh, it feels like Randy was not kidding at all. Randy filed that insurance claim for $57,000, and then, weirdly enough, every single thing he bought as a replacement for the stuff that was stolen were the exact same as the ones that were gone. Like, exact same brand, even the exact same age. It's weird to find the exact same age of, like, a TV... Or a specific tool. Um, It's almost like the stolen items magically returned. And he finally got to replace the nasty red living room carpet that he hated so much. His neighbor Ben was as skeptical as I am and outright confronted Randy. And the two men never spoke again. Oh, wow. Yeah. The insurance company ended up settling with Randy for $28,500. And since we're fairly certain that Randy just faked the whole thing, I'm pretty sure this counts as insurance fraud. Just another scam that Randy pulled off for money. You know, like the scam he pulled with his wives, marrying them super quickly, getting them to make him their beneficiary, then putting their lives in danger in the hopes of cashing in on their insurance. Sure, he may have allegedly attempted the scam three times by this point, but it only seemed to work once. Allegedly. Mm-hmm. So when his next... Uh, when was going to be his next attempt at the marriage scam? I'm so glad you asked. In the spring of 1990, Randy met Cindy Baumgartner, a widowed mother of two. They met at a Little League game. Cynthia Ray Locks, known as Cindy, was born November 11th, 1956, in Minot, North Dakota. Her parents were deeply religious. Uh, in April 1976, Cindy married her longtime boyfriend, Tom Baumgartner. They had two sons, Tyson in December 1979 and Riley in August 1981. Sadly, in November 1984, Tom died after a brief battle with Hodgkin's disease. He was just 29 years old. (sighs) Six months later, Cindy's best friend, Lori Baker, moved in with Cindy to help take care of the kids. Thanks to some survivors' benefits, Cindy was left financially comfortable, so when Cindy met Randy in 1990, she was more financially stable than he was. Because of her religious beliefs, Cindy refused to marry a man who had been divorced, so when Randy told her about his relationship history, he didn't bother to mention his first and third wives. He only mentioned Janice, who died in that terrible accident. On August 1st, Randy and Cindy impulsively ran off to Reno and got married. Randy then put his house up for sale, and he and Greg moved in with Cindy and her boys. And Lori, who had been there, you know, helping raise the boys, she moved out. But like his second and third marriages, as soon as the wedding happened, Randy's big romantic gestures stopped, 
as did their sex life, and Randy suddenly became cold and just no longer interested in his wife. Cindy soon realized that Randy had a pathological need to control everything. When she signed up at the YMCA, she had to ask them to address any mail to her to the name Mrs. Randy Roth, because she said when anything came to the house addressed to Cindy Baumgartner, Randy would get upset. Randy also continued to be an abusive asshole towards not only his own son, but also towards Cindy's sons. When Lori was helping Randy and Greg move in with Cindy, one of Cindy's sons started crying. Randy responded by kicking the child in the stomach. One of his classic moves. Uh, the child was nine. Good God. At the time. There was another time when Randy allegedly hit that same child in the face with a rake. Jesus. Uh, the boys also later claimed that Randy once made them do 250 bend and thrust exercises in the middle of winter in their underwear. Apparently, bend and thrust exercises are popular in the Marine Corps. Uh, Cindy's son, Tyson, said that when Randy overheard him say his hands were bleeding from the gravel driveway, Randy told him to shut up and physically threw him aside. Cindy's boys later admitted that they hid the abuse from their mother uh, because they were concerned if they told her, Randy would find out and punish them even further. In October 1990, Randy brought up the prospect of them getting some sort of life insurance. He kept pushing, it's the best thing for the children. Somebody think of the children. Sound familiar. Uh, while Cindy already had a policy of her own, she agreed to get a second one and make Randy the beneficiary of that second one. Life continued on for the new Roth family. Nothing out of the ordinary happened until July the following year when Randy, Cindy, and her two sons took a trip to Lake Sammamish uh, one week before Randy and Cindy's first wedding anniversary. Which brings us to a brief serial killer side note. Hell yeah. Lake Sammamish is the place where serial killer Ted Bundy abducted 23-year-old Janice Ott and 19-year-old Denise Nasland in July 1974. Between 74 and 78, Bundy murdered at least 30 people across seven states. He was arrested in August 1975 for speeding in a stolen car. He was soon released. Uh, Bundy was then selected from a police lineup in October 1975 and charged with attempted kidnapping. There were multiple trials and convictions. Uh, we don't have time. The point is, he was electrocuted in January 1989. <laughs> and I think that's the shortest I've ever done. <laughs> such a lengthy side note. What I love also, again, is yeah. for a man that has, it's such a prolific serial killer story. At the end of the day, you're right. Yeah. He killed these people. This was the years. He was put to death. End of story. That's Those are the broad strokes. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I would have gone further, but I'm like, well, this already was taking up a lot. But no, I'm I also felt I couldn't mention the lake whose name I had to Google how to pronounce. FYI. Oh, um, yeah. And, that's uh, a wild connection. It, uh, I was like, oh, someone's going to be like, you didn't mention that. And I'm like, no, no, here we go. I did. And yes, I know. 
I could have gone further into Ted Bunny, and I know I could do a whole episode on it. Of but course, honestly, we yeah. I probably won't. <laughs> like maybe someday, but he, I'm not chomping at the bit. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyhow, I get it. So <laughs> he killed a bunch of people. He's an asshole, and he's dead. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> God, can you imagine if that's how our, these episodes went? They'd be like 20 minutes. A lot shorter. Yeah, exactly. A lot. A lot. So most of the Roth family headed to the lake July 23rd, 1991. They arrive around 2.30 p.m. They immediately start inflating a two-person raft and a couple of inner tubes. The kids used the inner tubes in a swim area while Randy and Cindy rode the raft over to the east side of the lake. Hours later, Randy rode back to the beach. The children rush over to the raft to discover that their mother is dead. Randy claims that Cindy asked if they could take the raft to the east side of the lake because she thought it would be romantic. As a very quick side note, uh, when he originally told the story of Janice's death, He said that he wanted to go to the mall, but she suggested they should go on this hike because it would be romantic. Yeah, great catch. So I find that very interesting. But so Randy claims Cindy thought we should head across the lake to the east side. He told her, I don't know, seems far. Cindy said, allegedly, because let's face it, she didn't really, quote, with your strong arms, you can do it. This guy's the worst. Yeah, get the fuck over yourself. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> this man, I'm so over this man. But so they row over. He claims they paddle around for a while. They get in the water for a swim. And about 10 minutes later, Cindy gets a cramp in her leg. Randy tried to help her back into the raft. And then a wake from a passing boat turned the raft upside down. By the time Randy got the raft right side up, Cindy was floating face down. By the time he got her into the raft, she was no longer breathing. Randy said he knew CPR, but since she didn't have a pulse, he didn't bother. 19-year-old Mike McFadden was one of the four lifeguards on duty that day. He said he noticed Randy rowing very slowly towards the beach. Mike said Randy made no indication there was any trouble. And once he got the raft on the beach, Randy just sat there for like two to three minutes before moving. Cindy's sons ran over to the raft before running over to Mike for help. When Mike got to the raft, he saw Cindy lying in the raft, which he said had about four inches of water in the bottom. He said Cindy's body was blue and she was not breathing. Mike shouted at Randy to help him get her out of the boat so he could start CPR. He said he noted blood in Cindy's mouth and some discoloration on her neck. When another lifeguard took over CPR, Randy just calmly went over and started deflating and folding up his raft. Multiple witnesses said they didn't realize that Randy knew the victim or her children because he showed no emotion and did not comfort those children in any way, even though they were crying. 
911 was called at 5.36 p.m. Cindy was taken to a nearby hospital where she was pronounced dead at 6.35. She was just 34 years old. As with Janice, Randy requested no autopsy. One was done anyway. Cindy's cause of death was determined to be asphyxia due to drowning. It was listed as a possible accident. Randy had her body cremated almost immediately, once again saying, it's what she would have wanted. Police arrived at the hospital at 8.17 p.m. By then, Randy had already left. He took the boys to Burger King before renting a couple of movies at a local video store. The movies included Short Circuit 2 ah. and Weekend at Bernie's. Oh. And I get the idea of trying to distract someone um, after suffering a trauma. But maybe a movie about a man who dies and two men who spend a weekend trying to make it seem like that man is alive, all while taking place at a beach. Uh, maybe that's not something you show two young children whose mothers just died yeah. at a beach. Yeah, great call. Maybe. Classic film. But maybe that's not the movie it's for the moment. not the moment, no. But there is a lot of things to unpack about uh, Cindy's death. I want to focus on the stuff that makes Randy look the sketchiest. For example, uh, Randy didn't shout for help or try and flag anyone down after Cindy went in the water. Once he realized she wasn't breathing, he didn't hurry back to the beach for help. He also was instructed on how to help her and didn't. When he got back to the beach, according to the kids, Randy told them to go get a lifeguard, but also told them not to make a scene about it. That feels way too casual for a man whose wife yes. is not breathing. Randy knew CPR. In fact, he took an eight-hour CPR course in 1990 and yet said he didn't feel a pulse so he just didn't bother. Can you ever imagine saying something like that about any human at all, no. let alone a loved one? Randy left those two kids on the beach alone for hours. Given his history, it is more than likely that Randy planned this entire thing, but part of that plan meant leaving those kids, who were 9 and 11 at the time, alone for hours with no food and no supervision. Also, according to Cindy's family, she was an excellent swimmer. And when the police spoke with Randy, he became enraged when they took his inflatable raft into evidence because he told them they had no right to take his things. Cindy was pronounced dead at 6.35 p.m. Around 7.30, a grief counselor spoke with Randy they later told police Randy had not shown, quote, the slightest evidence of distress or grief or emotion of any kind. Randy also didn't call any family or friends to tell them that Cindy had died. But you know who Randy did call? He did call that guy in the paper who had a really sweet Corvette for sale. Oh, and he just wanted to know God. if it was for sale. And continuing with that sketchy behavior, I have to mention a woman that Randy knew named Stacy Reese. In February 1991, Stacy started working at the car dealership where Randy worked as a mechanic. When Stacy heard about Cindy's death, 
she contacted the police to say that in May, remember uh, Stacy, or Stacy, Cindy died in uh, July. In May, Randy started showing up at the office on his off days, sometimes three or four times a day. He would just pop in to see Stacy. At one point, Randy invited Stacy out for lunch, and that was when he told her his marriage was unhappy, and he said it was really more of just a verbal marriage. Verbal marriage. Verbal marriage. Is, uh, not a not a thing. But according to Stacy, Randy described Cindy as nasty and obsessive, and he said he didn't plan on being with her much longer, as his quote contract with Cindy was up on August 1st, and one of them had to go. August 1st being their one-year wedding anniversary. Cindy's death occurred July 23rd, which is about a week before that anniversary. And just in case someone is listening who thinks Randy was just being flirty with this woman and his wife's death was a coincidence, on July 27th, Randy called Stacy and asked her to join him and his children for breakfast. So literally four days later, he essentially tried to have a date hang out with him and his kids. Good lord. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. This dude is a fucking creep. But in that same conversation, which I will remind you, was four days after his wife's death, Randy told Stacy he wondered if maybe Cindy wanted to die. There's just no words for how enraging this <laughs> this particular man is. Yeah. But in October, less than three months after Cindy's death, Randy applied for Social Security survivors benefits for his son, Greg. He didn't mention the fact that Greg was already collecting benefits from the death of another mother, Janice Miranda. Uh, and when they asked about Randy's info, he told them he'd only been married twice, once to Cindy and once to Donna Clift. When asked, Donna Clift being uh, Donna number two, uh, when asked if Cindy had been married before, Randy said yes, but that she was divorced. She was not. She was a widow. Uh, then they asked uh, if Cindy had any surviving children besides Greg, and Randy said no. It's horrifying to think that Randy was allegedly murdering these women for money, but it feels so much worse when he's using his own son to profit even further off yeah. these women. Three weeks after Cindy's death, Randy collected $385,000 from Cindy's life insurance, and then he rejoined Parents Without Partners. God. Randy claimed, Sydney, Cin Randy claimed that Cindy did not leave a will, However, Cindy's friend Lori said she knew for a fact that there was a will in Cindy's safe deposit box at the bank. However, when Lori checked with the bank, it turns out the safe deposit box, which originally included mementos from Cindy's first husband, like his wedding ring and pocket watch, which were meant for her sons, uh, it was completely empty. And according to the bank, Randy accessed the box two days after Cindy's death. A second copy of Cindy's will was discovered in the county records office. The will stated Lori Baker, 
would be the legal guardian of Cindy's two sons, not Randy. This, of course, enraged Randy because this means he wouldn't be able to receive Social Security survivors' benefits on the boy's behalf. When Lori went to the house to collect the children's belongings, Randy refused to let Lori have anything, including the children's bikes, any photos, or literally anything belonging to their mother. Randy told Lori she had, quote, ruined his scenario, and that because of her, he wouldn't have enough money to keep up with the mortgage payments. Again, Randy received $385,000 from one of Cindy's life insurance policies. That is equivalent to $870,000 in 2023. But Randy wasn't going to need to worry about house payments anymore because on October 8th, 1991, he was arrested for Cindy's murder. Wowzer! Unfortunately, there was no physical evidence that Cindy had been murdered and no witnesses to the crime, so the prosecution relied heavily on their own recreations of Cindy's death, as well as the testimony of people who knew Randy. Both of Randy's living's ex-wives testified, and while Donna Clift openly spoke about how terrifying it was to live with Randy and how genuinely she feared for her life, Randy's first wife, Donna Sanchez, nothing but glowing reviews of what a great man Randy was. Hmm. She described him as very romantic. She said, quote, I always felt safe with him. He had that strong, protective type of personality. I find it fascinating that Randy's first wife is one of the only people who ever had positive things to say about Randy, and I'd love to know what happened during their relationship that made him start marrying women with the plan to murder them. Yeah. Allegedly, of course. Some of the other people who testified were Cindy's sons, which is heartbreaking to think about a child having to testify. Tyson, who was just 12 at the time of the trial, said that on the day of his mother's death, they ran over to the raft and Randy told them to get a lifeguard, but to do so quietly. Riley, who was 10 at the time, testified he noticed his mother's body was blue and that Randy specifically told them to very calmly go get a lifeguard, but to make sure not to make a scene. I'm sorry, but if someone I love isn't breathing, I am making all the scenes yes. to get them help. Yes. And also, even if you're faking this, sir, wouldn't a big scene be what you want? It's a personality disorder. They don't care. They think... They're smarter than everybody. That's why he's got NPD. Well, <laughs> I guess we're writing a musical now because I am going to need that backstory. I just thought the same thing. Look, I, maybe I won't write a Ted Bundy episode. <laughs> maybe we're going to write a Ted Bundy musical. Oh, my God. He's hiding in plain sight. He's working the calls at the suicide hotline, hiding in plain sight. He can murder everybody with all of his might. It writes 
itself. These are the gifts that we give to the world. Yeah. Yeah. This is the stuff that's going to be on <laughs> my grave. <laughs> and to be clear, um, I can be cremated, but make sure my cause of death is known for sure. Are you back? You want a cremation now? We've had so many conversations about this. <laughs> well, I'm I'm freaked out about being in a box. I'm freaked I don't out like about it. being in the ground. Yeah. Oh, but that's I'm right. also that's right. I don't want people to have the burden of what are you going to do with my ashes? You'll make a diamond, but like <laughs> shine bright like a diamond. But like what's <laughs> it's my dead sister? Else? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you did the Beyonce. <laughs> It doesn't make sense. It's a different artist. <laughs> this this is why they watch this. Show. This, is, this is why they listen to our show because in the middle of talking about death, yeah, we have a full mental <laughs> breakdown where I'm cackling into the microphone uncontrollably. <laughs> Where you quote Rihanna uh, and I make it Beyonce. And what I'm saying is, together, those two make what a beautiful two, two-headed monster, you know? Oh, my God. Stunning. <sighs> Good luck. That that concert? Get out. <laughs> I would Yeah. Oh, God. I'd throw out my back. <laughs> <laughs> Getting low? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I would try and do some sort of like, oh God, knowing me, probably some gyrate hip dancing that would not fare well with this body. I mean, it might look nice, but it's not going to feel nice the next day. It might look nice. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Absolutely. Oh God, I'm sober. My eyes are slits. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to keep them open. I'm literally yeah. so drunk. <laughs> I can barely see. I've had two and a half drinks. And the problem is, is that when I try and open them more, this is what happens. <laughs> I look psychotic. <laughs> I can't. Again, this is why they're here. Yeah. Oh, shit. We bring mm. it. We leave it all on the field, folks, whether you like it we or do. not. We do. Some people might edit this out, but. It's just not ever been what we've done. I, I think that mm -hmm. if you could. <laughs> if you could. Classify this podcast into a yeah. genre. I mean, first of all, I know that you're thinking, first of all, true crime. You're thinking all these things. I think it would be <laughs> uncut, uncensored, and raw. That that would be very yeah. like it raw, you know? Yeah. 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 I was literally just gonna say, even though it makes zero sense, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe we're the Rihanna and Beyonce of podcasting. Who's who? Oh, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I have enough swagger to be either, to be honest. Well, same. Oh, 
I love that I'm like, oh, God, I feel like my instinct is like, oh, Beyonce tends to do like a really large heel. I feel like you could do a really large heel. I do, yeah. But also like Riri does heels. But you know what I thought? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rihanna tends to be, and I'm not saying this, this is not a negative, but I feel like she's like maybe a little like raunchier, like a little bit like more sexual. So then I'm saying that's Blanche. She's more of a Blanche. That's you. Oh, Rihanna's more Blanchy. I could see that. It'd be an honor. Oh, God. Yeah, It'd either be way. A damn honor. We win it either way. We do. God, I bet they wouldn't laugh once during this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, again, look. For some people, this is their favorite part. This is where the magic happens. For others... Talking the crimes and singing in rhymes. It's a true crime podcast hosted by us. I'm starting to wonder if the podcast, if the musical is about the podcast. You know what I mean? Oh my God. A musical about a podcast? I don't think it's been done. Well, it would be like, if we're saying it out loud, well, basically copyrights it. Yep. I think so. Um, it's like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. There's like a narrator, and then there's like the stage where the things happen. This feels very sure. like that. I mean, I love the idea of it being literally two people sitting like in two different spots facing a computer so they can like zoom. Maybe there's a whole number where it's like a ballad and it's like, I see you through a screen. And I don't know what it means, uh, but I wish that we would do the show in person. Come on. It writes itself. Literally. And I know, I already hear them begging for it, and I have to tell them, no, there's not going to be a a full musical episode. Yet. (laughs) I can't say that I can't say never. I can't say never. This would be in the musical. Yeah, and somehow we have no time. No time. No time. How will we do it? How do we tell our story on the stage? Telling about the rage felt when the men kill the women. Sometimes it's the other way around. (laughs) I like I can envision such a beautiful choreography that's going to involve pins attached to like red string on a board. Yeah. Like making a murder board. Oh, yes. Our chorus performers are going to be. Yeah, exactly. We're going to need to source a lot of magnifying glasses for those backup dancers. (laughs) (laughs) I know they're not backup dancers when it's a music. The chorus. Yeah. 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 Look, one of us is not versed in that business and that's okay we've also been (laughs) off the rails for almost 10 minutes this is what we used to do a lot more (laughs) you're right you're right well because there was a point in the time where i felt like people shouldn't like i felt like it was almost illegal for me to read it i thought i just had to like say things so i would have 
print out my notes and tape them around the room so I could read them while we were. And then I just realized it's so much easier uh, to have it all written in a certain way. But yeah, it was, it was more insanity. It reminds me of the Glee curse. If you haven't, check it out. It's a romp. That's been a minute. Oh, I like that. Oh. All right, back to yeah. the case. Yeah, well, we're headed back to court. <laughs> because apparently we never got through that. Uh, they've loved the last 10 minutes, I feel it. So, yeah. yeah. Cindy's son, Riley also testified that Randy got angry at him for crying on the way home from the hospital, you know, after the child's mother just died. Jesus. Uh, Both kids testified that the day after Cindy's death, Randy made the kids help him collect all of Cindy's makeup and nail polish. The kids suggested giving it to family and friends. Randy said he was throwing it out because he said it was all useless. A week later, he sold Cindy's bike at a swap meet. Uh, The kids also said Randy would make them do exercises outside on the gravel. If they weren't fast enough, he'd turn the hose on them, even in the winter. He told them this was what he learned during his time in the Marines. And speaking of the Marines, Randy told anyone who would listen about his time in the Marines. He even had a shrine to himself in his front hallway with a picture of him in his Marine dress blues, two Marine Corps emblems, and a bronze plaque that claimed that he, as a sergeant, had been awarded a Medal of Valor. Randy would often say he was part of a special forces unit that led missions behind enemy lines. He claimed he was mentioned in a book about the Vietnam War. Randy's third wife, Donna Clift, testified that Randy had scrapbooks of gruesome pictures. We're talking bodies lying in ditches in Vietnam sort of pictures. She said Randy once gave her a book about the war in case she wanted to know what he went through. Randy told Donna that Um, during one particular special forces mission, they killed an entire village of women and children. Uh, Randy was so badly wounded during that, that he was hospitalized for 90 days. Multiple friends of Randy's testified it was common knowledge that Randy didn't like women, but that it was because Randy went through three months of brainwashing about how to kill people and mutilate women during the war. And yeah, Randy was in the Marines. But he told people he was part of an elite special unit during the Vietnam War and that he had been trained to kill a man with his bare hands without leaving a mark. In a letter to her mother in October 1981, Janice Miranda wrote, Sometimes his drawbacks are due to the years he spent in Vietnam. He used to have nightmares, some depression after his tour there. You probably wouldn't believe some of the things he had to do. He isn't proud of them, but it's either you or the enemy. And yeah, okay, sure. Randy did serve in the Marine Corps. However, 
he was only there for 11 months. And he was only a file clerk. What? He never went anywhere near Vietnam. Oh, wow. According to the Marine Corps, they didn't even have a special forces unit until 2006. Randy claimed he was in that unit in the late 70s. According to Randy's former fiance, Terry Hitchcock, Randy asked his mother to write a letter to the Marines stating he was needed at home. Terry said, quote, he felt w- wasted pushing papers. He said he should be on the front line or a, an assistant drill sergeant, something like that. When Randy took the stand, he admitted he had never been to Vietnam. He also admitted to several other lies he had told over the years, including that he was a martial arts instructor, that he owned a successful home repair business, that he was a motorcycle racer, that he attended college for three years, that he bought a gym, that he was part of a massive farming operation. All of these things were listed in the program for Randy's 10-year high school reunion. Randy suggested someone must have changed that information on him even though those were the same lies that he had told women for years. But either way, Randy also claimed he once beat up Ted Bundy to protect one of his sisters. Not true. And in June 1991, Randy secured a job with Metro Transit in Seattle. On what should have been his second day on the job, Randy called to say his wife had been in an accident and she was in critical condition and might not make it, which is a wild lie to tell, especially for a man whose wife would suffer a horrific accident just a month later. The death of Randy's second wife, Janice, was brought up during the trial. It was mentioned that Janice was found 50 to 100 feet beyond where searchers had expected her to be, based on where Randy said she fell. The leader of the search team said, quote, while anything is possible, it is the far extreme and beyond anything in my experience. He said in order to make Randy's version of events believable, Janice had to fall sideways. Unfortunately, again, there was no physical evidence and no eyewitness to prove that Janice was murdered. The prosecution did, however, mention that Randy had tried repeatedly to defraud insurance companies, and he had stolen from every employer of nearly every job he ever had. During a search of Randy's home, investigators found equipment belonging to the car dealership that he recently worked at. Also found during that search, receipts that proved the military awards that Randy had were actually just purchased at a military supply store. Uh, A wetsuit, which is odd because Randy told uh, police he was a weak swimmer. And why would a weak swimmer own a wetsuit? Um, There was also a poem written by Cindy that started, quote, Randy does not love Cindy. Randy hates Cindy. The poem then lists 44 things that Randy had complained about Cindy that she wrote in statements such as, quote, Randy hates the swamp that Cindy made him move to, Randy hates Cindy's money, and Randy hates Cindy's independent nature. 
so not the best look for Randy, but the biggest part of the prosecution's case was their crime recreations. Investigators went, went to Lake Sammamish and made several attempts to recreate exactly what Randy claims happened. However, they determined it was virtually impossible for a boat to generate a sufficient wake to flip the raft that Randy and Cindy were using that day. In the end, after deliberating for eight and a half hours, the jury found Randy guilty of first-degree murder, theft, and insurance fraud. He was sentenced to 50 years. He appealed, but was not successful. After the trial, Randy's son Greg went to live with his grandfather Gordon. When asked about the child, Gordon said he was doing okay, but he doesn't talk about what happened with his father. Gordon said, quote, he thinks it he thinks if he doesn't talk about it, it'll go away. I don't believe in reliving the past. Life goes on no matter what. Mm. Randy received 20% of the money from the sale of Cindy's house. He chose to put it towards his legal fees. The remaining 80% was put into a trust for Cindy's two sons. Her sons also received 292000 from two different life insurance policies, one that Cindy had purchased before her marriage and one after. Greg received 88000 from a second policy. Uh, now, I have one final thing to mention about Randy, um, in case anyone possibly still is on the fence as to whether or not he's a true piece of shit. But for this one, it is brief, but I need to give a trigger warning. It is brutal and it does involve the death of an animal okay so skip ahead a minute um if you'd like to avoid it at some point in the mid 80s randy seemed to take issue with a neighborhood cat the cat apparently walked across randy's car after he waxed it leaving little cat footprints on the hood of his car randy grabbed the cat duct taped it to the drive shaft of its owner's car so without realizing it, when the owner started their car, mm. they dismembered their own cat. Oh, my God. This guy is beyond a true monster. Now, before I go, and don't worry, we are no longer talking animals. I have to answer uh, one of the questions that Lauren teased in the opening of the show. And that is, does murder run in the family? Dun, dun, dun. As mentioned earlier, Randy was the oldest of five children. The youngest three were girls. The second oldest was a boy named David Marvin Roth, born June 7th, 1957. David and Randy had very different relationships with their parents. David described their father as strict and abusive. He said their mother, supportive and loving. Randy claimed their mother was a drug addict, and he often told people she was dead. When their parents divorced in 1971, Randy went to live with their father. David went to live with their mother. Uh, their mother later blamed the boy's father, Gordon, for how the boys were raised, saying he discouraged the kids from showing emotion. Well, on August 9th, 1977, 20-year-old David went swimming at Silver Lake, off the Bothell Everett, Everett, sorry, Bothell Everett Highway. He noticed a young girl hitchhiking south, so he offered her a ride. 
They drove to Midland Grocery, where they bought a six-pack of beer before driving out to a wooded area near Mariner High School. David and the girl started drinking. He offered her some pot. She turned him down. David then made a pass at the girl, but again, she turned him down. She then told him she felt uncomfortable and wanted to go home. He lashed out and started to sexually assault her in the front seat of his car before strangling her with a bungee cord. Believing that she was dead, David dragged her body from the car and left her in the woods. As he turned to leave, David noticed the girl was moving, so he grabbed the twenty-two caliber rifle that he kept in his trunk and shot the girl in the head seven times. Wow. He picked up the shell casings, got into his car, and drove away. Four days later, police were called to a disturbance in a small town of Goldbar as a man was causing a scene waving a gun in a park. When police arrived, the man was gone, but as they were pulling up, a car sped past them. Believing the driver might have been the man they were looking for, they followed him, pulled him over. The man driving was David Roth. They found a twenty-two caliber rifle in his trunk, traces of marijuana in the ashtray, and David was arrested on weapons and drug charges. He spent two days in jail, and his car was impounded. The day after David's arrest, the young woman's body was discovered by some berry pickers near Mariner High School. The victim was lying face down with her arms at her sides. She had been strangled and then shot seven times. Police found two empty beer cans near the bottle, the bottom near the body. Unfortunately, due to the multiple gunshot wounds to the head, it was difficult for police to identify the victim. A day later, David was released from jail. He went to stay with a friend. And for whatever reason, David then told his friend the entire story about the girl he had murdered just days prior. On August 19th, the friend contacted the police and told them about David's confession. Since his car was still impounded, they searched the vehicle. They found bungee cords and shell casings from the rifle. Police planned to question David when he showed up to court August 22nd for his drug and weapons charges. But David didn't show up. The victim was labeled Jane Doe and officially buried in Everett, Washington, a few miles from where her body was discovered. David was finally arrested in January 1979 on outstanding charges of marijuana possession. Police tested his rifle. It came back as a positive match to the weapon that killed Jane Doe. When questioned, David fully confessed to killing the girl, saying he simply, he killed her simply because she turned him down sexually. Unfortunately, he didn't get her name, so he couldn't help with her identification. Despite the confession, David pleaded not guilty during the trial, but in November 1979, he was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. He was sent to Walla Walla State Prison, where his brother Randy would join him in 1992. David originally claimed he had been wronged, but once Randy was put in jail, David started taking classes to try and improve himself. He took anger management, victim empathy, and avoiding negative peer pressure. In 1992, investigators used a plaster cast of Jane Doe's skull to create a facial reconstruction that they could release to the media in the hopes of finding out the victim's name. 
Uh, David was granted parole in 2005. He moved back to Everett, where he lived with a woman he married while he was incarcerated. David finally expressed remorse for the murder and said he was willing to do whatever it took to help identify the victim. He underwent several hypnosis sessions to try and help refine the police sketches that were released to the public. In 2008, Jane Doe's body was exhumed to obtain DNA samples that were entered into an FBI database. No matches were found. The remains were then examined. It was determined the victim was a lot younger than investigators had originally thought. At the time, they thought she would have been between 17 and 35, but now they realize the victim was probably like 16 to 19 years old. The investigators used that information, along with the DNA, to build a family tree, which led to Jane Doe's biological parents, which led to the adoption records, and thanks to advances in DNA technology, in June 2020, almost 43 years after her murder, the victim was finally identified as Elizabeth Ann Roberts, known as Lisa, who was born November 3, 1959. She had run away from her home in Oregon on July 25, 1977. She was last heard from 15 days later when she called her parents to send her money. However, Lisa never showed up at the bank to pick up the check. Her body was discovered five days later. Um, she was 17 at the time of her death. David Roth uh, died from cancer in August 2015 at the age of 58. According to Randy Roth's third wife, Donna Clift, Randy once told her his brother David was in prison for strangling a girl. Randy then claimed he helped David hide the car before convincing David to turn himself in. And since Randy didn't get any details of the crime correct... It's safe to say this was just another lie in Randy's long, pathetic history. Randy Roth will be eligible for parole in 2029, mm. which is horrifying to think about. As of 2023, Randy is currently serving his time at the Stafford Creek Correction Center in Aberdeen, Washington. Aberdeen, of course, being the birthplace of the one and only Kurt Cobain. Yeah. May he rest. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. There's just so much to talk about other than our TCAC musical. So let's take one more break, <laughs> hit the can, grab another drink, and we'll be back to wrap it up on the Randy Roth episode of True Crime and Cocktails. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. 
Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Randy Roth case. I want you to know the very first note I took today was Dragon's Mate for Life. <laughs> That's where we are on that. I like that. Yeah. I, I love that, especially because dragons, I mean, they tend to be like hundreds of years old, aren't they? I'm asking this. <laughs> You're the expert, <laughs> Ernest. Babe. You're the I'm expert. I'm asking this earnestly. Um, I hope so. Yeah. yeah. The idea it's, it's of beautiful. mating for life for hundreds of years. I mean, that's beautiful. That's, it's nice. That is nice. Um, I want to know, uh, I'm just going to get right to it. When did yeah. Randy have his his traumatic head injury in childhood? Right. Because it's, we've got all the traits here. It feels like we're reading a textbook. It is possible uh, if... David and the mother are correct that the father was abusive. It yeah. is possible something happened there. I was just thinking that. Well, and the fact that David also um, did kill somebody. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Feels like where there's smoke, there's fire. And with a seemingly very abusive father, it's more than possible that someone could have hit their head. And again, it, because again, it just feels yeah. like. We're, we're seeing serial killer tendencies, is my point. Um, the next note I starred, feel feelings for a dragon, to which I wrote, we put on a nice show for folks. <laughs> That's literally what I wrote down. <laughs> That's going to write that. We put on a nice We put on a nice show for folks. <laughs> <laughs> what an idiot um, no I love it <laughs> all of these details about how abusive he was are so mm. horrifying I, I don't even oh. want to replay them verbally because why um, what a monster what a monster but again this is all speaking to absolutely showing the same traits that we talk about on the show over and over again like lack of empathy um only caring about themselves, being very charming. Like there's, there's, they're all there. Yeah. They're all there. Um, one thing I do need to touch on is mm -hmm. when he asked this gentleman, Nick, if he would ever kill his wife, Nick was justifiably horrified. Yep. And then Randy was like, what if the Russians were coming and you knew she'd be raped and murdered? Mm -hmm. One, what kind of small talk are you into here, Randy? Yeah. This feels nothing comfortable, apparently. Pretty heavy. Yeah. Pretty heavy concepts. And also, I just want to say, like, call me crazy, but if if I knew that, if we all knew that, to use his term, the Russians were coming, which feels very bizarre, um, let me change it to imminent violent death if there was sure. a chance that we were going to have an imminent violent death i don't think i'd want my partner to kill me i think i'd want to see it through let's see how it goes can we get out of here can we fight back can we join a resistance can we get on a bus like i, I don't know 
I don't know what the situation is in this weird scenario, but I don't think it's comforting. Like if, if it was like, if my partner was like, yeah, no, I'd kill you just in case. I don't think that's great. No, no, no. Um, can we join a resistance? <laughs> <laughs> maybe my favorite thing uh, that you said there. Um, I am just double checking the year a specific movie came out. Oh, wow. Okay. Because when did I say that happened? Which wife was that? Oh, shit. Yeah, I already forget what wife that was that he was going to potentially murder. Um, there was a movie that came out in 1984. It They remade it in 2012. Uh, but it's called Red Dawn. And it was essentially, yeah, like Russians coming in and taking over and like raping and murdering the women. That 80s one is a particularly hard watch. I bet. I bet. But I was just like, as someone who seemed to be a cinephile, <laughs> I say that based on Thank you. his preference of Short Circuit 2 and Weekend <laughs> at Bernie's, which both out of the park classics. Choices. Yeah. Um, I'm immediately like, did he see that movie? And that oh, sparked, yeah. is that what sparked it? But I'm like, shit, when did he, had that movie come out yet at that point was, was my point. Yeah. Oh, I already don't remember. Well, it's a great thought. And, and I think moreover, it just speaks again to this man's truly unhinged brain, which brings me back to my original point, which is we got a lot of traits happening. Um, yeah. when his first wife passed, the, the first one that died, and he insisted on seeing the body saying, her face doesn't look as bad as I expected. This is a detached, uh, unfeeling, again, it's just every detail here. It's like, do we want to call him a sociopath? Do we think this is a psychopath? Do we think this is a narcissist, like a narcissist personality disorder? Do we think it's all of the above? And I, of course, am not an expert, so I can't speculate, but I'm going to tell you this. I guarantee it's one of the above, at least one mm. of the above. Sorry. That is a that is a wildly non-human response to seeing your wife's dead body. Everyone 100%. reacts differently. Everyone reacts differently. Grief is different in different people. This isn't a judgment. Given his overall scope, the comment, her face doesn't look as wrecked as I thought it would, or as, as bad as I thought it would, that's mess. That's okay. A hundred percent. I also verified he had that comment in 1981 before that movie came out. So there goes okay. that theory. Well, but, there you go. But I guess it was a fear that was like, I feel like wasn't that Cold War time? Like, I feel like that was. Sure. But I just I don't mean, think that people were having conversations with acquaintances about like, hey, if you thought that there was a really good chance your wife would be raped and murdered, would you kill her in advance? Like that is a, that is not a, this isn't a like, would you rather be blind or deaf? Like this isn't like a, <laughs> one of those. And by the way, a glib question, a glib question to ask, but I'm just saying that's one that typically I feel like people have heard in the past, you know, it's like. Oh, of course. Would you, this or this. This or a, this. Yeah. Is a very different game yes. than. Would you kill would you? your wife? Yeah. Wild. Kudos um, to the guy for being aghast. Yeah. 
that's reassuring. That's reassuring. Refreshing. Yeah. 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 When his second Donna came home and found him trying to get her young daughter to jump off the roof. Mm. Wowzer. The fact that he was using this story twice about his sister killing herself in the mother's hotel, hotel, hospital room. Not true. Yep. Again, these are all the traits. I cannot make this clearer. Um, when he pulled in with the second wife that died and she's dead in the boat in water with no alarm from him telling the kids, mm-hmm. don't make any big deal. This man, again, at, because that was at, at that point, that's when you brought up like, why wouldn't he put on a show? And that's when I went into our big show, our show stopping number. Um, oh, yeah. On Broadway. But no, I think that at that point, he was in his, and that's why I went with the narcissism one, um, you know, speculation, because it feels like he really believes he's smarter than everyone and that he can get away with everything, anything. So he didn't have yeah. to fake it because he was going to get away with it either way. Yeah. And I think, honestly, the one woman who, I'm sorry her name is leaving me, but the woman who had cancer so was, didn't qualify for life insurance. Mary Jo, yeah. She, I think she, he would have absolutely killed her if it wasn't for that. He was a very yeah. transactional killer. Like, it was like, I get you signed up for life insurance. I yep. kill you and get the money. Like, it just is what it is. And I think that's what saved her life, honestly. Um, 100%. The fact also regarding this drowning, that we know he took the CPR course years prior, but that he didn't give CPR because he didn't find a pulse. As someone who's taken one of those classes, thank you and mm-hmm. you're welcome. That's not how you're trained. So you are trained that if you come as a first responder into a situation, you are to give CPR until experts, i.e. paramedics, show up. I do also have a story, and I won't name the person. Somebody I know was first aid certified and was on a bus, like a Greyhound bus. This is a true story. Sure. The bus came upon, on a back road somewhere in the country, a car accident. Oh, God. My friend, they said, like, is there a doctor? Is there whatever? And he was like, well, I'm certified first aid train. Like, I'm not whatever, but like first responder type thing. And he got off and there was a body. And he gave that body CPR until the ambulances and the paramedics showed up. And he knew the entire time. But that's the training is that it's like if you've been trained and you choose to use your training, the training is, is that it's like, you're not qualified to determine if that person is actually alive or dead. Because the point I wanted to make was, well, she had no pulse. How do you know if her pulse was shallow enough? It's feasible that you, a person who is trained in CPR, but isn't a paramedic or a doctor may not be able to tell. It's also possible for people who are trained to not be to be able to tell that. And then, of course, they have, you know, don't I'm not going to start to get into explaining how they determine these things, because, again, I don't know. But the point is, is that I've heard this before when we were talking about um, the Ashton and forgive me, the names leave me because we flush these as soon as we record them. But the Ashton Kutcher 
Danny Masterson episode, bonus episode we did. And we talked about yes. how Ashton Kutcher, this woman that he had gone out with, tragically got murdered. Yes. One of the points that I had read, read in my research was that it appeared that, that she was dead, or it could have appeared that she was dead. But depending on when he may or may not have seen the body, if someone appears to be not breathing, if someone appears to not have a pulse, it doesn't mean that it isn't very faint. But it is, and now listen, is it, you know, is it likely? Probably not. But the whole point is, is that it's like, but it's not impossible. And when we're talking about a human life, you want to leave it to the experts to determine this instead of you, some random dude. But again, we all know the bigger point, of course, is that he obviously killed her and, um, he was convicted of that crime. So I think I can say that without having to say allegedly. Um, he definitely killed her. And uh, it's just sad to me, again, that he was also smart about it. He had the C- yeah. CPR training. He knew not to use it. Yeah. Awful. And if Awful. her body was blue by the time they got back and they were gone for hours, I almost guarantee he killed her Almost immediately. Yes. As soon as they were out of sight. And waited and then And spent hours that he would be like, well, and he probably kept checking and was like, when's the pulse gone? And then started rowing back. Yep. So he could guarantee she wouldn't survive. Absolutely. That's psychotic. It's a, it's a, yes. This man has got all of the markings of a serial killer. He would have continued his, his pattern if he hadn't gotten caught. For sure. I pray that man does not get out. I do too. In five years, because I guarantee he's going to he go will after do a again. sweet older yep. woman. Yep. Absolutely. This is the thing, right? Like, if it is a true personality disorder, if we're talking a true diagnosis, which, by the way, I feel we pretty are. confident again, like <laughs> I'm saying, I'm not trained, but I can tell you it's one of them. Um, that doesn't just go away. Yeah. This isn't like, you know, there are people who are chronically depressed. Go with me on this for a second. But then there are people who go through bouts of depression. Sure. I'm not, this is, this is like, this isn't a bout of sociopathy. Like it isn't like it can, you can get it out of your system. It's always there. Yeah. And there are things that you can do if you seek help. There are things that, you know, if you get one of, of these diagnoses, you can seek help, go to therapy, these kinds of things. But you have to want to change. And the whole point is, is that people who people who have these traits that then also kill don't tend yeah. to be people who want to try and rehabilitate themselves. Yeah. Never say never, obviously. But I agree with you. I think it's a huge problem. And he was convicted at a time where I feel like there was less data about serial killers. This man yeah. will target someone again. Period. Oh, yeah. Period. And if we know, which we know, that he's a great and compulsive liar. Yep. It's a recipe for disaster. And the other thing I will just say is we talk about it on this show all the time. Think about all the times there's been a case where it's like this person was in prison, released early, and did it again. Like, we hear it all the time. Yep. And primarily in murders and sexual assaults. These are the two things 
over and yeah. over again. So yeah, it's 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 fr- that that's frustrating. It's frustrating, but it's also frustrating to me that this man was convicted of this murder. We're pretty certain committed another murder of another one of his wives yeah. and that it's not life in prison. Yeah. This wasn't self-defense. This wasn't like Oh. I don't, again, it's it's like the cost of life, which is something else we've talked about on this show so much, where it's it just feels impossible. Impossible. For some of these people to let, it's like, and then he got seven years, or then they got 12 years. It's like, they killed a person in cold blood. Yeah. Wasn't defending themselves or defending their home or whatever gray area. It's like, no, no, just a flat out murder. And it's like, well... And so premeditated. So premeditated. He has a pattern here. We've just outlined it in the last two hours on this show. Like, if like, do we need to present this to the parole board? Like, I need to believe that they would be like, because they always, don't they ask, maybe it's just in movies, um, whether or not the person, like, will admit to their crime. Do they have remorse? All of that kind of thing. I need to hope that if they ask him, he's like, no, I'm, I never did anything wrong. And they're like, you should stay. Yeah. I'd I like, hope that too. I'd like, I'm hoping somebody on that board looks at his file or <laughs> listens to this show <laughs> and is like, wow, first of all, give those ladies a fucking musical. <laughs> Second of all, this, this man will kill again. But also to and be clear, he's going to target a sweet older woman. Yeah. And she will suddenly, you know, die in her sleep or something. Like, it's, mm, no. But also to be clear, don't volunteer us for this, folks. Don't, no. don't, don't, we don't, this isn't We don't want to be here. We don't want to be involved. We're not involved. We're not involved. No, it's just not, it's not what we do here. No. It's like when, you know, there have been suggestions that we, like, interview killers. That is not oh, what we no. do here. no. That's not what we're interested in. It's not what we do. We give you song breaks. <laughs> that's that's what we do. I'll get a little too drunk. Christy will go on a tangent about dragon sex. <laughs> I'll sing a couple <laughs> make ups These are the things that you are guaranteed with an episode of True Crime and Cocktails. And that is something yeah. that we're happy to guarantee. We don't yeah, want to well, get I'm- involved with the real life cases. We do not want to be involved. We are too we anxious. Oh, yeah. Too anxious. Yeah. Anyway. Um, on that note, <laughs> Christy Oxborough, mm. my anxiety twin, thank you so much for your work on this episode. As on all episodes, you knocked it out of the park. What a riveting, horrifying, but well-researched case. Uh it's appreciated, and I also greatly appreciate you calling them make ups <laughs> As though that's what they're called. That's an industry term. <laughs> industry term? No, it's what some improvisers say to be dinks. That's what it is. Anyway, I like it either way. God bless. We thank you, dear listeners, for going with us on this truly chaotic journey we could not appreciate your support more uh if you haven't already give us a follow on instagram facebook and youtube at your crime and cocktails on twitter at not detectives if 
you'd like some bonus content, go over to patreon.com slash truecrimeandcocktails to learn more about our subscription-based service over there. And of course, the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as well if you haven't already. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Murder Mountain. That's right, dear listeners. It's a documentary. It's on Netflix. It's riveting. It's compelling. It's gonna get talked about by us. Um, I don't know anymore. You're doing great. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Satan Ryerson. He's the boy from the, from the book who believes in strong women. It's not, it's not. <laughs> Good night, James Hetfield. (laughs) Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.